While you're settling in, open your Bible or navigate on your device to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Our text is 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. The topic, believers who continued to attend meals in the pagan temples were encouraging others to join them, thereby becoming stumbling blocks to them. The title of our message, Don't Stumble Thyself in the Sight of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you've been teaching us through this book that we are your temple on the earth. Lord, we're a unique structure of human beings knit together and put together in love, unlike any other organization or group in the world. As the Holy Spirit is in our midst, people ought to wonder after us and long for a relationship with Jesus Christ. I pray that we would just let you minister to us and then through us, Lord. And to that end, we want to study your word. We want to understand why it was written, to who it was written to, and how it can apply to us today. And knowing all that, Lord, we want to go back out into the world and invite others to this glorious relationship that we have to be saved by the blood and sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. File this under the category, who knew? When I was in sales, I would frequently take clients or prospective clients out to lunch. It was a fun perk of the job. And to make the most of it, I tried lots of different restaurants. It was this place in San Bernardino. It was on Highland Avenue near Del Rosa. Can't remember the name. I tried to find it, but they're not in business anymore. It served Middle Eastern food. Even though I'd lived in San Bernardino my whole life, I'd never been there. So decided that would be a, a restaurant I'd try. So I arranged to meet with two managing partners of a real estate office whose title insurance business I was after. Things were going great. Menu looked good. Our waitress took our order in a prompt manner. Our conversation was uh, good. Then it happened. Some rather loud cultural music began to play. Out came our waitress again, but in a change of clothes. She was dressed, if you can call it that, full-on I dream of genie. She went from table to table belly dancing lingering at our table for what seemed an eternity. <laughs> it was before Yelp. How was I to know I'd be having lunch and dancing? If they had Yelp in the first century, and if you used it to find restaurants in Corinth, you'd see that most of them were on the site of one of the 26 or so pagan temples. If you were in the mood for seafood, the Temple of Poseidon was always running a special. Temples to Apollos and Dionysus and Pan and Aphrodite were all popular dining spots. It's where you could first get Pan pizza. <laughs> hey, first service didn't get that. One source I consulted indicated there would be several restaurants in each temple, sort of like going to a food court. Believers in Corinth had frequented these establishments all of their lives. It's where you went on date night or for any celebration, really. They were the uh, incredible John's Pizza of their day. They continued to eat out at the various temple restaurants after they got saved, at least 
Many of them did. At these temples, the meals were sacrificed to idols before they were served. In a previous letter to them that is lost to us, the Apostle Paul had either strongly exhorted them or had forbid them from dining at the various temples on account of the idol worship that was involved. The Corinthians refused to obey Paul, arguing from verse 4, an idol was nothing and there is no other God but one. Paul told them why they were wrong. Well, they were right, but they were mostly wrong. Their arguments were not taking into account the potential for stumbling other believers that we will read about in verse 9. One commentator put the situation like this, personal behavior is dictated not by knowledge or freedom or law, but by love for those within the community of faith. Everything one does that affects relationships within the body of Christ should have care for brothers and sisters as its primary motivation. A simple way of saying that is that love triumphs over liberty. Love for others triumphs over personal liberty. So as we work through the verses, we're going to try to bring them forward to see how they might apply to us. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, you have the opportunity to be a building block. Number two, you have an obligation to not be a stumbling block. Let's take a look at being building blocks in verses one through eight. Just when you're thinking this might have no application to the modern Christian, you're watching season 15 of Survivor. They're in China. At the beginning of the game, the contestants went to a Buddhist welcoming ceremony. I remember thinking it was weird from the get-go. Even though they told the contestants it was merely cultural, it was clearly a Buddhist worship service. One contestant, Leslie Nice, refused to participate, saying it conflicted with her being a Christian. How about a Hawaiian luau? Its history is that of sacrificing food to various island gods. For that matter, how about the enchanted tiki room at Disneyland? <laughs> Among the gods there are Maui, Rongo, Tangaroa, and Wanahakalugi. <laughs> Verse 1. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up but love edifies. There were three parts to the meals that I'm referring to, the preparation, the sacrifice, and the feast. The meat of the sacrifices apparently was divided into three portions, that burned before the God, that apportioned to the worshipers, and that placed on the table of the God, which was tended by priests and priestesses, but eaten by diners. The gods were thought to be present since the meals were held in their honor and sacrifices were made. They were, of course, also social occasions for the participants. And so this is how you went out to eat in ancient Corinth. Uh, you'd go to a temple restaurant, and you would participate in some type of buffet that uh, had been sacrificed to idols. And you were served by the priests and the priestesses of that temple. We all have knowledge is a phrase that summarizes the argument the Corinthians were using. The knowledge they had, according to verse 4, was that an idol is nothing and that there is no other God but one. So they had gotten saved, and now as Christians, they knew that idols were nothing, and God was one and, and majestic and sovereign and glorious. They were right about that, but they were wrong about eating the meal without concern for how their behavior affected others. Paul answered them by saying, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies, love builds up is what that means. And so, because we live in community connected with other believers, I must temper my knowledge by love. 
So I may have knowledge that there's nothing wrong with what I'm doing, but I need to have love for my brothers and sisters to make sure that they are not affected by it. Verse two, if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. You can be orthodox, but arrogant. You don't know anything if you don't show love by preferring others over yourself. Paul's going to expand on love in chapter 13 of this book. I'll read part of it. You're super familiar with it. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to be fed, uh, to feed the poor rather, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. And so Paul is reminding them that their knowledge is impressive. It's correct to a certain point, but it needs to be tempered by love. If anyone loves God, verse three, this one is known by him. Your relationship to God is a love relationship. You love him, you're known by him. Paul's implying that since you are loved by God and since you love God, then you show that by loving those whom God loves. Uh, That makes sense. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. And so we agree with this. Paul agreed with it. That's the right knowledge. But knowledge wasn't the point. They were right about the wrong thing. For even if these so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, there were and there still are so-called gods on earth and in heaven. On earth, men craft idols to represent their gods. And even though Paul said or mentioned their saying that an idol is nothing, later in chapter 10, he's going to add this, the things with the Gentile sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. And so the idol may be nothing to you, but there can be a genuine demonic presence that ought not to be taken lightly. I think we can go too far, you know, thinking about things that are demonic and supernatural and all of that. But we can also err and think that there aren't supernatural powers at work in the world because there are. And so these guys were going to the temple and they thought, hey, my pan pizza is just, it's just pizza. Uh, that's all of it is. And Paul was saying, yeah, I understand that you have that knowledge, but there are real demons sometimes behind this activity. These guys are really worshiping idols that are empowered by demons. He says in heaven, that refers to real supernatural entities like Satan. He has principalities and powers, rulers of the darkness of this age. He's called the prince of the power of the air. In the book of Job, we see that Satan still had access to heaven. These supernatural foes war against us, and a pagan meal sacrificed to them is just the kind of place they would like you to come to so that they might start having a foothold again in your life. In another area of scripture, we're told to not give Satan a beachhead. You've all seen different variations of the Battle of Normandy when you know, so many people were killed coming onto the beach there but they eventually got a foothold on that beach and it changed the course of the war. And so this is our life as a Christian. The devil is always assaulting us from different areas, trying to get a foothold and and to establish a a beachhead from which to move. And, And Paul says, the idol may not be anything to you, but it's real. 
there are real demonic powers at work here, and so you, you, you might want to think that through. Verse 6, yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. This is probably a kind of early Christian doctrinal creed that they would memorize and meditate upon. We can identify in it monotheism and creationism and the deity of Jesus and redemption, just to name a few things. I would encourage you to take verse 6, not out of context, but in context, and just meditate on it and see how many things that you can draw from it about the, the wonder and the deity of our God. Here, it serves to underline what Paul was getting at. We have a familiar relationship with God. He is our Father, making us brothers and sisters in Christ. He is Lord over all things and, of course, of our lives. We thus have opportunity to love one another in the family under his lordship. It's a, I don't know how often I think about it even, but it's a wonderful thing. It's an amazing thing that we are called together as a family. Some of you have just terrible family background. I mean, awful things happen to you in your family. Uh, you know, broken homes, abusive homes, uh, tragedies, those kinds of things. Uh, we always joke this time of year coming into November and December about getting together with the family. Old Uncle Fred will be there, you know, that kind of a thing. And, and sometimes our families are mean, and wicked, evil even. And then you become a Christian and the idea is that you're supposed to be a part of the family of God. Everyone becomes your brother and sister. In one sense, you, you find mothers and fathers in that body, grandmothers and grandfathers, people who take those roles in your life, who provide for you spiritually in a way that no a natural uh, relative really can. And, and so Paul says, this is the, the situation that you find yourself in. So what do you care about your liberty if it hurts anyone in the body of Christ that you love, if it hurts a family member. Think about all the liberty you'll have in heaven. You have eons and eons and eons throughout eternity to enjoy things in a pure and rich way. And so you got to give something up, give it up. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge for some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol and their conscience being weak, is defiled. The idol may indeed be nothing to some, but not to others. To them, it's still, in some sense, idol worship. They cannot, in good conscience, eat in the temple restaurants. If they were to partake, it would defile them. Defile derives from a root word meaning soiled. We might say dirty. It would wound their conscience, causing guilt for sinning against it. And, and so um, all of us have had issues like this in our life, whether we're young Christians or mature Christians, things that it's like, I don't want to watch that. I don't want to go there. I don't want to see that. I don't want to hear that. Um, that's what I used to be. That's what I used to do. Or, or you know, I, I just, I've been delivered from that. That to me is still sin. Leslie Neese was encouraged to participate in a Buddhist temple worship ritual. They told her it wasn't religious. In the Luau example, if you have the knowledge, it's nothing. That's great but don't try to convince someone to attend who has doubts. Verse eight, but food does not commend us to God for neither if we eat, are we the better, nor if we do not eat, are we worse? Eating in the temples or refusing to does not commend you to God. In other words, it doesn't make you more spiritual or leave you less spiritual. 
These are personal issues to be decided in your own heart between you and the Lord. No one can or should overrule your conscience. Sometimes because we are exercising a liberty, we may be a little bit skeptical about it even in our own lives, and so we want other people to join in so that, it, so that it's okay. And we actually encourage, oh, the idol is nothing. Just come on, they, they, they're introducing a, a brand new fish dish. A sailor named Long John Silver stopped in, and he's got filet of fish sandwich. How many of you remember Long John Silver when they were here? I ate there one time and only had hush puppies. Is there anything worse than the McDonald's filet of fish? I'm, I want, really, honestly. Do you like, be honest with me, does anybody like the filet of fish sandwich? Raise your hand. Oh my gosh. <laughs> This is a very important point. Not, not that. But. We tend to think of those who exercise great liberty as being really mature. Those people can eat filet of fish. Fish that's been sacrificed to idols. Wow. And, and, and so they must, they must have broken through and, and gotten rid of all their inhibitions and their conscience, and that's real maturity. But that's not necessarily true. It's not a mark of maturity. Liberty in an area is not a mark of maturity or immaturity if you don't have liberty. That's a personal thing between you and the Lord. We're not all on a quest to eat filet of fish. Do you understand what I mean? I mean, I'm making, using that as a stupid example, but we're not someday, okay, Lord, before you come, I will get over it, and then we can all have a filet of fish feast. Now, that's not the point. Uh, and so people who have liberty in an area, they're not necessarily more mature. In fact, they may not really have liberty. They might just be acting that way, thinking that they're mature, and you'll find out once they get sucked back into something that God had delivered them from. I don't know how many people I've talked to over the years. I don't want to mention anything in particular, but God delivered them from something, and then they started dabbling with it again, and they became bound to it again, and it was much harder the second time to get over it than it was the first time. Liberty is great, but the greatest is love. Number two, you have the obligation to not be a stumbling block. Wesley would do anything for Buttercup. His test consists of the sword fight with Inigo, his wrestling match with Fezzik, and his battle of witlessness with Vizzini. Then there's the fire swamp and the pit of despair, all for the princess bride. I don't particularly like that movie, but I know you do, so I try and move, work it in. <laughs> I don't get it. But uh, anyway, I'm sure we all agree with Paul's analysis. Love triumphs over knowledge. But now the question becomes, how far are you willing to go for the sake of love? Verse 9, but beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. They were at liberty to eat in an idol temple. It may not be advisable, but they had it as a choice. The real issue was whether or not their doing so would become a stumbling block to those whose conscience prohibited them. Stumbling block seems to mean actively encouraging the so-called weaker brother or sister to participate. It wasn't just that some of them were still having these dinners at the temples. It was that they were inviting the weaker brothers and sisters, urging them to come 
and to get over their immature reluctance. Uh, you know, if we were to impress our own cultural ideas onto Corinth in the first century, it'd be like you throwing a birthday party for one of your kids at Pan Pizza. And you'd invite all of your Christian friends, some of whom had real problems with going there and partaking of the meal. But there was kind of a pressure from Christians who didn't have that prohibition to go. And probably they were saying, oh, you know, an idol is nothing. God is one. Just come and enjoy yourself. And in coming and trying to enjoy themselves, it would, they would be stumbled. And so the stumbling block was the encouragement to come. And the stumbling was done by those who followed that. To paraphrase what Paul said, do not use your liberty carelessly in a way that leads a Christian still vulnerable to these old accusations, associations rather, to backslide. Verse 10, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? Is it just seeing them that is the problem? Are they across the street at some shop and then they see a Christian go into the temple? Here's a different perspective on that that makes sense. They seem to be urging others whom Paul describes as people whose consciences are weak to join them at these meals. This seems to be the best way to make sense of the fact that they see them sitting at a table. How could they see if they weren't there? What is destroying them is the fact that they are under considerable pressure to accept or have actually done so the invitations of those who say they had knowledge. And so it's more than just knowing a person still went to the temple or seeing them uh, from outside. It is going in with them and being with them and, and being led into sin in that way. And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. Instead of seeing others as weak brothers and sisters, Paul says those are for whom Christ died. And sometimes we forget that. You know, we're so interested in, in, you know, hey, this is the best sandwich I ever had. You know, come on into the temple of Aphrodite. Paul says, these aren't just people. They're people for whom Christ died. And you want to be really careful how you handle that. And you want to be aware of that. Christian's very life was at stake because he said they might perish. That sounds really serious. And of course it was, and it still is. The brother or sister was probably a former idolater who was in danger of falling back into the grip of idolatry. They were being encouraged to return to things Jesus had delivered them from. Well, how might they perish? Well, one way I think is that we don't normally think about but makes the most sense is that God might kill them prematurely. We don't see this a lot in the modern church, but it was prevalent in the first century. You know, everybody wants to be like the first century church but I don't want to be like this in the sense that God might kill me for disobedience. In the book of Acts, there's the example of Ananias and Sapphira. They saw Barnabas sell his property and give all the proceeds to the apostles. Everybody thought that was a wonderful thing. Barnabas didn't want any accolades. He didn't have his name on a chair or they didn't call, you know, it the Barnabas program or anything like that. He just did it out of love. So this married couple, Ananias and Sapphira, they decided to do the same thing. They did want honor and glory for it. And beyond that, they sold their money for a certain price or their property for a certain price. And they gave the money, but they withheld part of it, but said it was the entire price. And as the story unfolds, one at a time, God strikes them dead 
Later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul's going to talk about their behavior at the communion table. It was atrocious. It was a potluck where people brought their food and hoarded it themselves. And so people who had very little brought very little, ate very little. People who had a lot ate a lot. Then they ate so much they were getting drunk before communion and coming to the Lord's Supper drunk. Paul says, a lot of you are weak and some of you have died. And he meant that God was disciplining them by killing them for this behavior. And so that's one of the ways that you perished as a Christian in the first century. Verse 12, but when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Sounds like Jesus saying to do something against one of the least of uh, us is to do it against him. Getting more technical, some commentators point out that the plural brethren might mean the entire body of believers in Corinth. Thus, the ones with knowledge were sinning against all the believers as well as directly against Jesus. Sometimes you just need to have the correct perspective or analysis or, or understanding of what you're doing. And so Paul said, let me put it this way. Let me make it simple for you. When you do this, when you force your liberty onto others and, and become a stumbling block to them that they stumble over, you are sinning against the entire body of Christ. And worse yet, you are sinning directly against Jesus. That's what your knowledge has led you into. And so, you know, sometimes you just have to, let's get rid of all the bells and whistles, all the fluff and stuff. What are you really doing according to God? And then deal with it. This sometimes works in counseling, sometimes not. You go to the word and say, the Bible says you right now are in sin. I agree with that, but not in my case because of my personal circumstances or something. I'm sorry, it's not true. And so before you make excuses, before I make excuses, before we make excuses for anything, just analyze what you're actually doing from God's word. And, and then if you want to continue to sin, at least know that you're in sin. And don't try and sugarcoat it. Verse 13, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So this is the life verse of vegetarians. <laughs> a couple of years ago, Pam and I became vegetarian. It bothers everybody. I don't know why. So I am a vegetarian. I'm not vegan. It has nothing to do with that. But I am a vegetarian. And so please don't come up to me and ask me if I miss my In-N-Out burgers or anything like that. It seems to, it does. It seems to offend people as if I'm saying you should be a vegetarian too. I don't care what you eat. Eat a whole cow. <laughs> eat horse. I, you know, we eat whatever you want. You know, horse is a big delicacy in other parts of the world. So is dog. I have a video on how they make hot dogs if you'd like to see that. But anyway, we'll show that next week during the announcements before one of our potlucks. But anyway, uh, Paul isn't suggesting you be a vegetarian. He's applying the principle of love triumphing over knowledge. The issue was foregoing your rights in order to edify other believers. It wasn't just the eating of meat. It was eating it in a way that was a stumbling block. We've seen that means encouraging or urging the brother or sister to partake or to participate against their conscience. So I think you're clear on that now. Back to the enchanted tiki, 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 tiki room. 
why do I try? <laughs> uh, when's the last time you were in the tea? Who's been in the tiki room in the last five years? There, that's the song, right? It's, yeah. Hey, wake up. Uh, anyway, you have liberty to sit there and enjoy the show. You're in no danger of worshiping Wanahakalugi. I mean, he's, it's, it's Disneyland. But if the family you're with think it's demonic, don't encourage them to get over it and go in. Don't act as if they're immature. That would be being a stumbling block. To that end, as much as it might be your favorite attraction, the must-see on every visit to the happiest place on earth, I mean, why even go if they're refurbishing the tiki room? <laughs> Maybe you would skip it for the sake of loving others. While we're on the subject, there's a difference between a stumbling block and offending someone. A brother or sister without a clear conscience to participate in something doesn't always see it as a liberty. They think that if it's wrong for them, it's wrong for you. I'd say they are offended, not stumbled, as long as you've not urged them to participate. Them being offended doesn't give them the right to tell you what you can and cannot do. And so nobody can come up to you and say, it is wrong, categorically wrong and evil and wicked to walk into the enchanted tiki room. I don't even know if you're a Christian if you can do that. There are people like that. Hopefully not here because then I've just offended you. But anyway... Um, <laughs> That's just not true. That's offending people because they want you to be like them. You do have liberty. They don't. That's fine. Can we all just get along, to paraphrase Rodney King, right? But you might want to tone it down if you have liberty or give it up for the sake of love. Because remember, love sets limits on liberty. Genuine Christian maturity lies in thinking more about others than I do about myself. It lies in personal sacrifice for the sake of seeing others built up in their faith in Jesus Christ. If you think you're mature, then be mature and defer to love every time. Maybe you've been stumbled. Uh, maybe, probably all of us at some point in our Christian life have been or will be stumbled where our conscience pro prohibited us from something but Someone else really encouraged us to go for it. And then when it was over, we felt terrible because it was sin for us. There's a scene from Chariots of Fire that comes to mind. One of Eric Little's competitors pushes him, rounding a turn in their race, and he stumbles to the ground. Get up, man, finish the race, mumbles the Italian coach to himself. And you remember Little gets up, he runs, he finishes, wins the race, head held characteristically high to suggest that he runs what? For the glory of God. Ooh, it's one of those great scenes. Don't push your brothers or sisters to stumble off that narrow way. Be careful with your liberty. If you've stumbled, get up, man. Finish the race for God's glory.